You're listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast, exploring the rich, flavorful history of Manitoba food and the people who make it, sell it, and eat it. From the packing table to the dinner table, from restaurant specials to grandma's secret recipes, we consider the cultural, social, and commercial aspects of Manitoba food and what it means to us. I'm your host, Kent Davies. As per usual, I'm joined by food and business historian, Professor Janice Thiessen. Hi, Kent. What's in the pantry for us today? On this episode, we're telling the story of Diversity Food Services with interviews with Chef Darwin Gaspar and Chief Operating Officer Ian Vickers. It's a story that we've been really wanting to tell for quite a while, and with the impact of COVID-19 on the food industry, there was more impetus for us to do so. Diversity is kind of an anomaly amongst food providers, and we wanted to know if their service model had helped in any way um, whether some of the devastation by the, uh, the effects of uh, COVID-19. That's right, Kent. We've been interested in doing an episode on diversity since becoming partners with them early on in the project. So remind me and our listening audience, how did we end up partnering with them? <laughs> well, uh, we wanted to have a food truck. We wanted to use a food truck as a mobile oral history lab where people could cook at the same time as we interviewed them. Um, And uh, we don't know anything about food trucks. I mean, we did a bunch of research uh, about how to obtain one, what all the rules were, all that sort of thing. But it doesn't matter how much prep in advance you have. Uh, It's not the same thing as owning a truck and realizing that there's a whole host of complications that you just didn't know about. And so by partnering with Diversity, who have expertise um, in restaurants and in food management, they could help us figure out what do we need to do to get this truck up and running. And so it's been great. And the the other thing is that it's not the kind of project that many other food-related businesses would be on board with. It's like, you know, hey, why don't we share a food truck and we'll run it as this weird research lab and you'll run it as a normal food truck and somehow it will all magically work out. But they're on board for challenges and for weirdness and for fun. And uh, this project has been nothing but challenges and weirdness and fun. So (laughs) it's been a great pairing. I also wanted this episode to address how much the pandemic has affected the food industry. And um, there's been countless articles about this. Uh, According to a new Free Press article, the majority of Manitoba eateries lost more than 70% of their revenue since the pandemic. And with government subsidies and supports winding down, many owners are very skeptical if they're ever going to be able to fully recover. You know, the pandemic has been a real reminder to us that it's those local independent small businesses that really affect the flavor of a neighborhood. And when they're gone, the neighborhood is not the same. The challenges of the pandemic and the restrictions constantly changing in response to various waves, it's been very hard because there'll be an announcement that in three days' time, you know, restaurants are able to open at such and such capacity or they're allowed to have patios. And it's really not enough lead time for restaurants to be able to stock. And in the other direction, you know, if they're suddenly shut down, effective in a couple of days, well, you've, you've... got a freezer full of food and now suddenly you have to unload it or uh, just write off that cost. So it's been very expensive. And then too, um, you know, you read some articles where restaurant owners or other small businesses blame CERB for the inability to attract workers when they do reopen. Um, It's not that so much as uh, these are high-risk industries to work in now. Yeah, and, and I want to talk about that. There's food writers like Corey Mintz and others that are arguing 
this pandemic has really highlighted the way in which the industry has routinely exploited workers and treated them unfairly. And some in the industry have moved on because of that. Uh, can you talk about that? For sure. It's a, it's a low-wage industry, whether you're front of house or back of house. Um, it's just, uh, you know, and, and despite tips too, it's just, it's not um, a well-paid job. It's also really varying hours. You know, there aren't many who can count on uh, the same shift day to day, week to week. So that makes it hard to organize the rest of your life, right? The, the benefits, the vacations, those are, are not the same as in many other areas. So of course, you know, if people have the opportunity to do something else, they do. Whether it's cooking or whether it's waiting tables, those are jobs that are not as respected seemingly in North America as they are in many parts of Europe. The assumption, the incorrect assumption on the part of many North Americans is that, you know, folks who work in the restaurant industry are folks who are just, you know, between jobs. They're young people making money just for fun while they're going to school and living at home, or it's, uh, you know, folks who can't cut it in other industries, so this is what they're doing. Uh, and that's, that's not the case. The pandemic has made us aware that uh, a lot of those jobs uh, we're really dependent on, right? And unfortunately, as with so many other essential workers, there was a, a couple of months of, you know, applause and a couple of months where employers might have increased wages briefly. But, uh, and I think Corey Mintz and others draw this to our attention really well. These are hazardous jobs even outside of a pandemic. Um, because of the speed of the line, um, because you're working with, you know, in many cases, open flame, right? Or certainly very hot surfaces at a minimum. You've got um, really sharp knives. These are, are dangerous jobs. There's a, an, an ethic within the industry that is coming to light through the work of Jen Ag and people like her to draw attention to the fact that some of the traditions, some of the practices within restaurants need to change because this culture of, you know, push through no matter what the cost, just bandage yourself up and keep going uh, isn't a healthy one, right? But because the wages are so low, it's, it's hard for people to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm sick, I'm going to call in sick and just, you know, I, I cut myself so I'm going to be, you know, looking after that cut. No, you just, you push through all that. Uh, so hazard pay, I, I can see the value of it, except that this is an inherently hazardous job, so there should always be hazard pay, right? right. This, these should just be better compensated jobs. This episode was kind of a bit of departure of what we regularly do, and it's pretty recent uh, history we're dealing with here, although it deals with the history of diversity food services as well. After doing this episode, it's not it's hard not to be a little pessimistic, um, but after talking with Ian Vickers, there's some degree of hope as well. This situation may have prompted more people maybe to think about where their food comes from, to, you know, buy better, buy locally, and maybe to think about essential workers and what they do for us every day. Yeah, one of the exciting things about talking with uh, Ian Vickers uh, is that, of course, we, we love him because he's our research partner, but we also love him because of the very innovative way that they have created a, a food service within Winnipeg. And so to to hear him talk about how he still sees hope in the midst of what's been an incredibly hard year and a half for him. You know, I've had job stability in a way that 
Ian Vickers and the folks at Diversity and the folks in the restaurant industry have not had. And I haven't had the same constant changes to how my work is structured the way restaurants have. And that he still has hope and optimism in the midst of all that um, is really an encouragement to, to me and I'm sure others when they listen to this episode. All right, let's have a listen. Darwin Gasper from Diversity Food Services. We're outside Seed Winnipeg, a nonprofit agency that works to reduce poverty through employment and economic development programs. We're here because they have a partnership with Diversity. Today, Gaspar is operating a food truck in their parking lot. And not just any food truck, it's the Manitoba Food History Truck. Over the course of the pandemic, the Manitoba Food History Project has been unable to conduct interviews on board our mobile research kitchen. Usually around this time, we'd be traveling around Manitoba, talking to folks at different festivals and community events. Since that's not the case, Darwin and Diversity are putting the truck to good use. They're serving lunch to the staff at Seed and various walk-ups from North End Winnipeg, some of which who were surprised to see a food truck even operating. As many restaurants can attest to, it's been a struggle to serve food during the pandemic. So if it's a normal non-COVID occasion, you would already know, okay, I have this many events, it's gonna make me this much money and rent costs this much, and they already calculate that for the entire year. But with COVID, obviously like a lot of events got canceled, everybody has to like look into their books and like see, okay, how am I gonna pay for bills? And if relationship between the kitchen operator and the person occupying the property, the person you're paying rent, and you don't agree, then it makes it very difficult for restaurants to make ends meet. According to Restaurants Canada, the food service industry lost between 21 to $44 billion over the course of the pandemic. Social distancing measures and public health restrictions, while essential to combat the spread of COVID-19, have added multiple logistical and financial challenges to the daily routines of many food service providers. In addition, restaurants are experiencing increased job turnover caused by constant layoffs and recalls during each subsequent wave of the pandemic. This has all led to an unprecedented amount of restaurant closures across Canada. In the beginning, we heard so many places close down and they said they're not coming back. So we didn't know what was happening and that was uh, giving a lot of stress, anxiety to a lot of people. I don't know what's going to happen by December or by fall. It's yeah too soon to say for what's going to happen with us. It's estimated that over 10,000 restaurants in Canada have closed since March 2020, leading to hundreds of thousands of job losses. While the federal and provincial governments offered some financial support to soften the hardships incurred by the food service industry, in order to survive, many dine-in restaurants have adopted new service models. So uh, ever since the pandemic, we started trying to figure out uh, different ways to uh, earn an income. 
Uh, one of which is the food truck. So far, we've only been starting operating three weeks ago. This is our third week today. So again, like it's a lot of the menu that's already at the University of Winnipeg. Uh, there's nothing that's we haven't done before. So for us, it's just uh, trying to find people to buy buy things from us. Gasper has been working in the food service industry most of his life. His love of making food led him to take culinary arts training at Red River College, where he's now an instructor. I know that back when I was a kid, like my my uh, parents and my grandparents would always talk about food all the time. I guess like for us, it's a big part of our family is food, and I've always tried to like make something that's good that I would like show to everyone when I was younger. And like during high school and university, I've always had part-time jobs that involved uh, the restaurant industry. And like when I realized that uh, maybe university wasn't for me at the time, and that's when I decided to go to culinary school six years ago. And ever since then, I've been just cooking. Right in front of you. Okay, Gasper has been recognized for his culinary skills, winning a provincial competition in 2015. Now, as Diversity's head chef, Gasper has assumed a number of different roles. Among them is running the food truck, a task he is uniquely qualified for. I wouldn't say it's a, a big transition. It's different because you have to figure out working in a small kitchen that doesn't have access to electricity all the time, doesn't have access to water all the time. So you, I have to be mindful about what I have. Like after high school, I actually did a little bit of uh, auto mechanics when I was like in my early 20s. So I have a little bit of a background with like how uh, vehicles work. So I feel like for me, it was like a smooth transition going from like operating a kitchen to a mobile kitchen. Cause like I have background on both the mechanical part of a, a truck and like the logistical part of a kitchen. During the summer months of the pandemic, some of the restaurants have been taking full advantage of their patios, offering outdoor dining. With the lack of indoor eating options, one would assume that food trucks would be a viable option when eating out. However, permits and stringent regulations are even a bigger barrier than they were before. So I guess like what, what the biggest thing that we're trying to figure out is like the permits. There's a lot of permits that we need and a lot of regulations that we have to know before we can even start the food truck. Like so far, the reason we're here at the Seed Foundation is because it's a private parking lot. Uh, we don't have a parking permit from the city because it's already almost August that it wouldn't make sense for us to get a permit that costs thousands of dollars to operate a truck that we just spent more thousands of dollars from, right? So, uh, so right now we're basically ha having friends help us out. The lack of festivals, public gatherings, and decreased foot traffic with many Manitobans working from home has made it difficult for even the most popular of food trucks to make a profit over the last two summers. A lot has changed in the food service industry since the start of the pandemic. Many restaurants which managed to remain open are now offering only carryout and delivery options. Some rely on third-party delivery apps, which also affect their bottom line. These so-called ghost kitchens have reversed a pre-pandemic trend that was once favoring communal spaces for sit-down dining. Now, some are speculating that diminished dine-in options may be the norm long after restrictions loosen in a post-pandemic world. That's not all that's changed. 
In the early days of the pandemic shutdown, decreased demand also meant that food providers had an excess of raw food, sometimes from local suppliers who were also dealing with canceled contracts and significant loss of revenue. This prompted some businesses in the food service industry to go the extra step and not only offer meals, but groceries as well. Diversity was one of them. So I'm sure it was like a big uh, change for us to go from being cooks to suddenly being grocery store workers all within a week. Uh, and we were trying like many different ways to help us organize ourselves and sort of keep everybody uh, sane. In the beginning, we've actually had some interesting orders like uh, people were ordering uh, sacks of flour, cases of eggs. Someone would order like uh, 20 kilos of strawberries and obviously like Throughout the pandemic, we all heard about people suddenly having a lot of time, so they would start start doing baking, and not just baking for themselves, baking for their entire family. So uh, we've had some very interesting orders, and in uh, definitely. Gaspar credits one of the reasons diversity has managed to stay afloat during the pandemic is its unique structure. So that's the benefit that I feel like we're very strong at is flexibility. Uh, we have a very small core team that can easily adjust to any situation very quickly, but yet at the same time, our purchasing power, through the help of the university and through the help of our various locations, we have enough buying power to just like, get all of our suppliers to help us out, acquire goods, and then we can easily just like, within a week, have a website ready, have the grocery store items pulled reposted, have a system set up. We're just that type of company that's very flexible. We're not something like, for example, uh, like a giant franchise that would have to like coordinate between like a head of a head of a head and then bring it back down again, which would probably, some people probably took months to figure that out. Us, it took us a week. Well, um, diversity is a, a strange little company. That's Ian Vickers, Diversity Food Service's chief operating officer. He's explaining why diversity is fairly unique in the food service landscape. Diversity is a social enterprise. It's owned by two not-for-profits, Seed Winnipeg, which is this fantastic uh, group who work out of the North End, and their primary concern is helping people who are have been systemically marginalized. Then our other owner is obviously the University of Winnipeg Community Renewal Corporation, this not-for-profit that's within the not-for-profit of the university that's primary function is to build uh, sustainable buildings for the university and for the community. Basically, the university um, had decided that it was going to uh, build a residence and build a uh, recreation center and build what would become the Bueller Center. And Dr. Axworthy looked at things and said, hey, I could give all of this money to a bunch of development companies or I could just start my own development company and tasked it with building things in this very sustainable way. Uh, Dr. Axworthy and Sherman Kreiner sort of looked at things and said, we're building this residence and we're going to be bringing all these people here. And McLean's Magazine keeps telling us that we have the worst food available on any campus in the country. We shouldn't do that. We'd like our own sustainable option. So how are we going to do that? And so they reached out to Seed and said, how about you help us start this company? Sustainability, according to Vickers, not only reflects their distinct social enterprise model, but diversity's attention to delivering food in ethically and environmentally conscious ways. Uh, our thoughts on sustainability come from those two parent companies. And so the UWCRC basically says to us, you know, 
We want you to feed really good, sustainable food to the University of Winnipeg community. Seed Winnipeg says, we want you to pay living wages and be good employers and employ people from marginalized backgrounds. And so what diversity does is basically, instead of paying our owners uh, a traditional return on investment, the return on investment that the owners expect is us feeding those social mandates. As a result, what we give them is the most sustainable food service company available on any campus in North America. Vickers argues that diversity's approach has a net benefit that extends beyond the university campus and hopes other campuses take a look at adopting their model. When I, when I think about something as simple as coffee, right, like we, when we buy our coffee, because we don't own a franchise operation, because we don't have any of those shareholder equity sort of things, right, we're not beholden to a Starbucks or a Tim Hortons or a Van Hoyt or a Kraft to determine what our kind of sustainability options are. So instead, we're able to go to a local Canadian roaster and say to them, you guys pay your workers a living wage. These are the same values that we have. So we want to do business with you. Can you buy all organic either fair trade or cooperatively generated beans, you know, roast those beans off, ship them to us. We're going to buy a lot because let's be honest, the university runs on coffee. They're now guaranteed a certain volume of, of purchasing is going to happen. They're going to ship it to us in boxes that are in with, lined with compostable bags so that there's virtually no footprint at the end of it. We throw the compostable bags in the compost. We take the boxes afterwards. We fold them all up. We ship them back to them so that they can ship them back to us in the same, in the same containers again. Again, ways that we're able to work with these otherwise small companies because of the value of what we're able to add by being the anchor purchaser, they're now able to bring those goods to market to other suppliers. Other people can now buy those same coffee beans that we've now asked them to make for us. That, that's just coffee. Right now, think about that in the terms of we, we bought from 86 different vendors last year because we tend to deal with just a local farmer for tomatoes, right? Just a local farmer for cucumbers or potatoes or onions, right? So when you sort of scale that up and what it's meaning is, is it's sort of why we do so well with, with those sustainability indexes, because we're able to have that bigger impact. Over the years, Vickers has played a big role in supporting diversity's mandate and contributing to its success. It's a job he admits he didn't see coming as he was ready to retire from the hospitality industry, an industry he's been working in most of his life. I, I guess I've been in the industry 26, 26 years. Just It's one of those things that you become passionate about once you're in it. I actually, my second job when I was in high school was washing dishes in a little greasy spoon in Southern Ontario. Uh, and I worked in the dish pit and sort of worked my way through that place and then got into quick service. And I had some fantastic opportunities in Toronto. I was working with Oliver Bonaccini Group, just one of those great experiences. Got to work with some industry leaders and some fantastic chefs and really start to understand food that way. After his move to Winnipeg, Vickers was looking for something outside the food industry when he was approached by Diversity's board of directors. With Diversity, so it was during one of my breaks from hospitality, I decided that I was going to get out of the restaurant industry because the late nights and the long hours and all of the things that, that go along with that lifestyle were not conducive to, in my opinion, the family that I was in the process of starting. My wife and I had just moved to Winnipeg and we'd been here for a while and I was looking for a restart. And so I did what one does uh, at that stage and went back to school and uh, went to the Pace 
program at the University of Winnipeg. I was enrolled in project management. And while I was uh, sort of completing that, I was approached by some people who were in the board of directors for Diversity Foods and asked, hey, we've, we've got these, these group of people who really want to do food service in a different way and we understand you have this background. Would you like to talk to us about how we could work together and, and you could be on the team here? In the hospitality industry, it's, it's pretty common for a manager level person to be working sort of 100 hours a work week. Diversity didn't have that lifestyle. And so for the last seven years, I've been chief operating officer of diversity and have not looked back and have been very happy with this decision. It's a good, uh, it's a good life balance that also allows me to stay in the industry I love. For Vickers, diversity was a perfect fit, not only in terms of hours, but mandate as well. Vickers wanted to help manage a food service provider that was interested in doing things in a more socially conscious way. If we actually care about people and planet over profit, if we actually can, can look at a thing and say, you know, yes, compostable packaging matters. The fact that these things leave this planet is a good thing. Yes, we should not be harvesting fish off season by having giant farms that are massively polluting our oceans. Yeah, your, your sugar doesn't have to be derived by forced labor. Your produce doesn't have to be farmed by U.S. prisoners, right? Instead, we can just buy vegetables that, that don't come from that. We'll pay a little bit more to do business with local small businesses instead and those local local farmers. That's the way that we can look at things and, and it's hard. Did it take us a lot of trial and error and um, actually focusing in and, and trying to figure out what are the things that really matter? What are the things that we just can't do because it doesn't work? And what are the things that we can? And we did have to go through that stage. Despite the many logistical and financial challenges of operating a business in a socially conscious way, diversity managed to expand, adding new food outlets and growing their workforce. Their approach has earned them multiple awards, including the Association for Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education, which has routinely recognized diversity as the most sustainable campus food provider in North America. Then, in early 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic hit. We watched those those cruise ships and understood that there was a pandemic coming. Our first thought was, if this pandemic comes to Manitoba, how do we make sure that we aren't part of the problem? As a major vector for transmission that hospitality could be, with, with all those people in our dining rooms, with all those people going through our spaces, how do we make sure that we don't that we're not the ones who take down campus? We came up with a plan where we all agreed that you know when the first case of COVID was discovered in Canada, that's the moment when we would stop using reusable cutlery and reusable bowls. And we would take everything to uh, single use packaging materials and we would stop allowing suppliers to access our kitchens, right? We would start having our deliveries received in a, in a loading bay area. And then we would put them into a quarantine area for three to five days, implement masks. And so we had sort of agreed early, early on in the early days, what our thresholds would be and what would be the triggers for different levels of precaution we would kick in. At the onset of the pandemic, Vickers knew that diversity services would change on campus, but what he didn't know was how dramatically. We had assumed that campus would continue to operate at reduced capacities. That was my mistake. I, I will wear that mistake. My assumption was that not that campus would shut down, that I didn't assume that to be an option. Despite taking a proactive approach, the extremely unpredictable nature of the pandemic left Vickers having to make tough decisions regarding the future of diversity. Things started to close down and we realized how fast things were going to close down. We went through this process then of determining who would get laid off. And uh, our first thought was, we need to get all of our staff laid off quickly so that they can be first in line at the uh, employment insurance office. 
And so um, what's crazy is that we sort of went through this process where we were like, okay, you know, whom do we lay off and at what stages? And we went through the whole thing on the Friday. And I remember this because the Friday was just this horrible, horrible day. Wow, we're going to lay off this person and we're going to lay off this person. We're going to lay off this person. And it was just these swaths of people. And then the Monday came around and none of it mattered. The answer was we were going to lay off almost everybody. And then three days later or five days later, the federal government was like, hey, we've created the new CERB. And so then we had to bring all of our staff back to cancel out their EI and do their paperwork so they could get onto CERB. Uh, uh, three weeks after that, the government came back and said, hey, we're going to do this wage subsidy program. We can recall some more of our people now and have them come back and do these other jobs because there's a wage subsidy. That's wonderful. You know, and, and we did all of that and we did it thinking that it was going to be sort of this three month thing and maybe get through the summer. But, you know, by May, we'll be back. No, by June we'll be back, by July we'll be back. And it was, okay, well, we'll be back in September. And then when September rolled around and it became clear that the university wasn't gonna be reopening, that's when we also had to actually say to those employees, we, we can't do this anymore, guys. We need to now just release. It's just this, this absolutely uh, horrible gut punch of an experience. Last March, we had 108 people working in diversity. We have 24 right now. Basically, we had to shrink our company down to being just operating on campus at the University of Winnipeg. And then, of course, there was the part where we had to refund all of those students who were on meal plans. We had to suddenly get current with all of our suppliers. Um, and then suddenly there was no more revenue coming in because all of the events were canceled and we had to get everybody out of our operations. And so it, it just created this horrible cash crunch uh, scenario then. Yeah, that we're still, we'll probably be suffering the, the, the full uh, financial effects of this for many, many years to come. Diversity also had the added responsibility of being the main food provider on the University of Winnipeg campus. Many students were still relying on diversity to get affordable food, especially when options were limited in the early days of the pandemic. It's an extra responsibility for us. It means that we don't have the privilege of just being able to shut down, right? Like part of my brain first said, uh, uh, you know, last September, okay, we close the company, lay everybody off, you know, including myself, everybody, close it, freeze it in time, and then reopen it when campus reopens. And the answer is we don't have that privilege because we actually need to service this community who we've committed to serving. That, that's why we exist. You know, it means that we're able to keep um, at least 24 of the jobs going. And, and the University of Winnipeg has been uh, fantastic as a landlord for us in that they're not holding us accountable for our full rent uh, during this past year. Um, well, campus is closed. We're, we're paying uh, basically uh, what I hope is the, the value that it costs the university to have us occupy the space. Facing a campus-wide closure, loss of contracts, and a monetary crisis, diversity was forced to think of new ways of how to operate. Thank you. Uh, within a week of, of the shutdown, uh, our chef, Jessica, came to me and said, hey, our suppliers are not going to have any way to bring their goods to market. In Toronto and Vancouver, I'm seeing these restaurants already pivoting to the grocery model and going to this online grocery product. And so we were one of the first uh, in Winnipeg to actually launch our restaurant and to make that jump to online grocery sales. Basically within campus shut down on Friday the 13th, before the following Friday, we had our uh, grocery store online up and running and delivering to largely our, our primary customer continues to be the campus community. We've been able to take those those goods to market down so our suppliers and our farmers and those people who we like to do business with can continue to have an outlet through us and we can continue to, to keep those relationships alive. I mean, honestly, my team is brilliant because they think in these ways where they're just like, let's just do this. We're just gonna launch a website and, and switch our entire business model to grocery. And then from there, we looked at it and said, okay, well, we are going to continue to have some people on campus. We need to be able to get food to them in a way that's meaningful. So we launched an app that uh, so that people can order online and we do delivery to wherever you are on campus. 
While pivoting to a delivery model is helping keep many food service businesses alive, Vickers worries about the long-term effects on the industry as more and more Canadians rely on home delivery platforms for their meals. Increased waste from takeout containers, reliance on third-party apps over local delivery providers, and more automation has lasting environmental and economic consequences. Ghost kitchens also redefine the restaurant experience, which once could be a fun, relaxing social event. As we've learned from this project, eating a meal together with friends and family, or even someone new, is an important social ritual that defines us as a society and has been vastly diminished during the pandemic. Even with the prospect of selective reopening, Vickers knows that the service model diversity once had won't be the same. We're changing our entire service style so that you'll probably walk up to a counter, ask for food, and we will make it for you and hand it over to you. Self-serve coffee. We can't do that now, right? We can't have people ladle their own soup. The challenge is, is that we want people to be able to interact with those humans who are making their food. We want you to see that there's real peppers and real ingredients and real tomatoes from local farmers being used to cook. So we can't just seal the thing off and say, hey, walk up to, you know, go on your app and punch in your order and food will magically appear in front of you. That, that isn't how it's going to work for us. Instead, we're trying to do that in a way where you still see the people who are actually making this food. You can actually still have that human connection, that human interaction. It's part of what makes diversity unique that we try to balance those things but it also adds, adds some extra challenge to the equation. In the aftermath of the pandemic, Vickers also worries about the mental health of food service workers that have had to endure so much uncertainty and stress over the past year. My, my major concern right now is just how we come back, right? We're gonna have a bunch of people who either are, like myself, privileged enough to have been able to keep our positions, keep our paychecks coming, keep, keep things going and just be able to pivot. I think we're going to have a lot of people who sort of have survivor syndrome after that. We're going to have a bunch of people who were let go and were laid off, who are going to be returning to work uh, either with us or with other companies who are going to come back with sort of the understanding that they aren't necessary when we weren't able to fill spaces for them. And then the last group of people are going to be the people who were deemed essential and yet, you know, not essential enough to actually get on the priority vaccination list, which means really, are you essential? The labor I provide is essential, but my body and my family is disposable. All of the trauma that's going to be in places as people come back and how, what that's going to be like for a workplace. Something that gives Vickers hope for the future of the food service industry is the number of consumers who made a point of supporting food service workers and the local economy during the pandemic. I mean, we've seen a lot of uh, social movements really take off during lockdown. There's been a lot of people who have had a lot of time to actually look at things and say, how can I best mobilize my dollars to help my local economy, to help the people that are here, right? And when you think of those terms, you start to make some really great decisions. We were on this fantastic trajectory pre-pandemic. Um, here in Canada uh, and here in Manitoba especially, we saw more and more cooperatives firing up. We saw more and more social enterprises coming online. All of those things were beautiful and they really did mean that we were following that right trajectory where people were caring about localism and people were concerned about good quality jobs. That's what I'm optimistic about. Despite the challenges diversity has faced throughout the pandemic, Vickers still sees the opportunity in social enterprise paving the way for a sustainable, socially conscious future that can be adaptable in times of crisis. When it comes to the Build Back Better, I mean, I think social enterprise has a huge role to play in that, right? I mean, the reality is, is that we can take all of the values that not-for-profits have and instead actually have a business 
do those things and use business tools to finance it so that you're not relying on this this incoming stream of, of donations. The upside of social enterprises is that you end up with this place where we can finance the good work ourselves by just having a competitive product that people care enough about. That's really what diversity's been trying to do all along is be a model for other institutions and other frameworks to look at it and say, you can actually accomplish all of these, these outcomes, all of these deliverables, all of the sustainability and be a market competitive framework, but it's self-sufficient. It, it feeds itself. It doesn't need anything else. You've been listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast, produced, written, and narrated by myself, Ken Davies, hosted by Janice Deason and myself. Our theme music is by Robert Kenning. Kimberly Moore creates the photos and images that accompany each podcast. Preserves is recorded at the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center. You can check out the OHC and all the work that we do at oralhistorycenter.ca. For more Manitoba Food History Project content, information, and events, Go to manitobafoodhistory.ca. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have a Manitoba food story and you want to share it with us, contact us by clicking on the contact link on the webpage. Preserves is made possible from a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Thanks for listening.